Well, I want to thank you all. This has been a really encouraging week for me. For years, I said no to speaking to anyone under 18 <laughs> because I teach college students primarily and I'm a pastor of a church and I, all you ever hear about young people is they're distracted, they're on their phones all the time, they're disconnected, they're apathetic, and, and I finally agreed to do it many years ago, and it's been such a joy. And I think that it's increasingly the case that young people are hungry for truth and for lives that matter and for lives of meaning, and TikTok isn't going to give you life and meaning and what you're really after, and so... I just, I really genuinely want to thank you young people for how wonderfully engaged, locked in, respectful, hungry, responsive the majority of you have been this week. It's been really encouraging. And I especially want to thank the youth pastors and counselors who are the real heroes of this whole ministry. You guys are amazing. I'm so, so grateful. You, you, dear young people, have these amazing big brothers and sisters and mother and father figures in these people who are ministering here, and they are giving up their time, their weeks, their, their energy, their effort, their resources to pour into your life. And, you know, you hear alarming statistics about young people who are walking away from the Christian faith and from their church, and all the research says that by far... The number one factor that keeps young people from walking away from the church is meaningful relationships with one or two or three older adults outside of their parents that they can have meaningful relationship with. And you all are so blessed with that. I never had that growing up. I didn't go to church growing up. I didn't have a youth group. I never went to anywhere like Hume. And so you are so blessed. And it's not a coincidence God has you here. I know you're all over the place. I know some of you are thriving in your relationship with Jesus. I know some of you are struggling in your relationships with Jesus. I know that this week some of you came here knowing you're not a Christian, but you came anyway, and I'm so glad you did, and maybe you became one this week, last night, and, and some of you came thinking you were a Christian and maybe realized you weren't, and God's working in your life, and so no matter where you are, I want you to know the fact that you're here isn't a coincidence. God has you here because he's pursuing you. The Bible says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And so there's an opportunity God gives us to respond to him. He pours out his presence and his word in our lives, and it's so important we heed that call and we respond. I also want to talk to those of you who stood last night. Bless you. I'm so grateful for your willingness, your courage to stand up and be counted and say, I want to follow Jesus. Now, I also want to speak to the fact that a lot of time emotion is involved with that, and that's a good thing. God made us emotional beings, emotional creatures, and our emotions are a part of what God's doing in our lives. And if you look back last night and maybe feel a little sheepish or embarrassed, like, wow, that was, that was a lot of emotion I showed last night. Don't be embarrassed. Satan wants you to be embarrassed. He wants you to say, well, that was just some you know, high school over-emotional thing. And, and don't question what God's doing in your heart when he's moving you toward himself. It should have emotions associated with it. Emotions are a beautiful thing. And so don't be embarrassed. And also realize that as I prayed last night, when you became a child of God, you became a soldier in his army too. And you are now fighting wars and battles you weren't fighting before. 
And so there's going to be increased attack. There's going to be increased uh, uh, um, uh, temptations in your life because now you are part of God's advancing kingdom and Satan's going to push back on that. He doesn't care if you're a conscientious objector in the battle against principalities and powers in high places. He'll leave you alone if that's the case. But once you join the battle, he's going to want to take you out. And so get up in the morning and put on the whole armor of God which means the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and attune your mind and heart to the things of God and avail yourself to all the resources He has for you. So thank you for this really blessed week. I'm really grateful to all of you that we've been able to partner with your local churches. Hume is truly a para-church organization. We like coming alongside churches and encouraging what you're doing. And those of you who came without a church, I especially want to affirm your desire and your willingness to do that. Uh, that that's a beautiful thing. And, and I, yeah, I love that. And I also so love the way I've watched you all minister to each other. It's not just the pastors and the counselors that, that are ministering. You're ministering to each other. And there's a power in being ministered to on a peer level that's a really special thing. So keep that going in a great direction. And I love how Churches have merged here this week and, and become one on the different teams. It's just a beautiful thing to see. Well, we're going to take one more look at the book of Daniel tonight in our last time in the Word together here. So if you'd open your Bibles this time to Daniel chapter 9, it's fascinating. We started our story and Daniel and his friends were teenagers. They were right where you are. And now, just, just here in chapter 9... We're on our third human king, and Daniel's an old man. It's been decades since this story started, and there's beauty and patient endurance and longevity in the Christian life. That's what we're living for, not just mountaintop experiences, but mountaintop experiences that translate into daily life and the mundane traffic of life as we go about our daily work and our daily business. And so... We're on our third king. We, we went from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar and now to Darius. Another human king is involved here. And it's so important to realize that the turnover of human leaders is 100%. Now, if you think we have a great leader in this country or a horrible leader in this country, just wait around. It won't be long before he's gone. And not just because his term limits are up, but because humans die. Human leaders die. Good ones bad ones, there's one king who never dies and is always on his throne, and that's God Almighty. And so that's the God we serve. So we don't have to freak out depending on the latest election results. It doesn't mean we don't seek to be good citizens and vote wisely with our Christian values going on, but, but we rest in the fact that God's on his throne and that's never going to change. And so Listen to Daniel. He's aware of sin that continues in the lives of God's people, idolatry that continues in the lives of God's people, and watch the response of this godly man under King Darius to the ongoing idolatry of the people of God. Let's pray as we go to his word. Lord, help us in this last time together tonight to be further equipped, further transformed, further deepened, further conformed to the image of Christ, further encouraged and emboldened to live faithfully, to live resiliently, whatever may come our way. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to Daniel's beautiful prayer as he goes to the Lord in repentance. Verse 3 of Daniel 9. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And when you have more time later, please go back to this chapter and read this whole chapter, this beautiful crying out to God of Daniel, which was probably like like a lot of the, the crying out to God that happened last night. But just skip down to verse 16 here as his prayer continues. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for our iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, you and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I want to highlight a few things going on in this beautiful prayer of repentance of Daniel. The first thing is I want you to notice that he uses throughout this prayer of repentance all first person plural pronouns. What do I mean by that? He keeps saying we. He keeps saying our sin. There is absolutely no indication that Daniel has personally and individually started worshiping idols. There's no indication. As a matter of fact, it's clear he has continued to personally, individually walk faithfully. But what he has here is a mentality that completely is united with the people of God. He's not setting himself apart in some critical posture, just throwing stones at God's people. He identifies with the people of God like all godly people in the Bible, And he uses we language in light of the sin here. I love this. You know, it's really cool these days, even for Christians, to bash the church. To be really critical of the church. And look, the church has problems. We always have and always will. And everybody says, oh, if it could only be like in the New Testament. You know what I mean? Like in Corinth where you had incest and people coming drunk to the Lord's Supper and divisions. Oh, it's never been ideal. 
We've always been in process. We've always been progressing toward where God has us. There have always been problems in the church, and we need to address those problems. We need to speak prophetically into them. We as God's people, when we're thinking clearly like Daniel is, we need to be a prophetic voice into the church. And if there are problems we have or or blind spots we have or gaps we have or sin we have, the Bible says that judgment begins in a household of faith. And so before we start criticizing the culture out there all the time, let's get serious about being the people of God in here, as the church, as the people of God. Because we have to have integrity when we speak into the culture prophetically with lives that actually represent the holiness of God and what he calls us to in his word. And, And so we need that, but we need it from people who speak prophetically and who love the bride of Christ. Look, the church is the bride of Christ, and God has promised that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And that's not a defensive term, right? Like, oh, here come the gates of hell. Let's not, let's not cave in. That's an off, uh, offensive term, right? Where, where we are ripping out the gates of hell from its moorings and releasing the captives. Hell won't even win against us. The church is going to win. And so we have that confidence going in. And we need to walk with that confidence. But we need to do it loving the bride of Christ. Now, I have an amazing wife. She, she's incredibly godly and wise and good and funny and smart and creative and gracious and compassionate. She's, she's amazing. But she's not perfect. And she needs constructive criticism sometimes. She, she has flaws and problems that, that people are free to point out to her, and she was, she's very teachable. She'll listen to you if you come to her and, and give Donna some constructive criticism or point out a sin in her life or something like that. But if you criticize Donna in my presence, <laughs> it better be done with a clarity that you're doing it for her good and not to tear her down, not to criticize her just to criticize her or show her, her how much better than you her she better than her you are. And so, so how do you think Jesus feels about his bride taking shots from other Christians all the time as if those Christians aren't part of the problem? Right? If you're a Christian and you're part of the church, you're part of the problem. <laughs> you are. You bring all your stuff to the table too. And you need to see yourself as a helpful part of the solution as well a constructive part of the solution. And so I love that Daniel uses all this we language. He identifies with the people of God, even though he could easily say, oh, I'm I'm good, God. No, he includes himself in it. That's beautiful. The second thing is there's an amazing humility in this. he's, He's humble and he's truly repentant like we talked about on on Thursday morning. It's true repentance. It's not excusing sin. It's not blaming sin. It's not trivializing or minimizing sin. It's owning it, calling it what it is, and get good at repenting. One of the best ways you can be an example for people is in the way you repent. (laughs) See, being a, a, a Christian that people can follow doesn't mean you're perfect. But what it means is When you fail, you own it. You own it before God. You own it before other people. I just got an email day before yesterday from a student I had in 2018. And this guy emails me confessing that he cheated on an assignment when I had him in class. 
2018. And it was honest, and he owned it. And, and the, mo- the biggest response I had was not, I'm going to go back and change that grade, but this brother's been carrying this around for years. He could have been free from that. I get it. I understand. And, and I, I didn't minimize lying. And it's actually really scary to me how common cheating is from what I read. Like almost 80% of students admit they cheat. And they rationalize with things like, well, I thought the requirements were too strict, so I just kind of made it fair. It's just amazing. And I know all the online aspects of this and getting homework from friends. You compromise in that stuff. And it just erodes your soul. It erodes your integrity. It, it, it makes you unemployed in the kind of gospel ministry God wants you to have because you're not a person of integrity. You really want to sell your integrity for a one-letter grade? You want to just trade that in? It's not worth it. And, and so, so being the people of God means walking in humility and owning our sin and repenting. And the great news is that this is what the Bible says. When you repent, when you confess your sins, you know what the Bible says? God, who's faithful, he'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, when you fear the Lord, it includes trusting his grace, trusting his mercy. You don't want to live a life carrying sin around. And so you have the freedom to confess and repent the way he does. None of us is perfect. We all need to be in process Owning our sin. Every time I've confessed sin to God and to whomever it needs to be confessed, every time, tremendous freedom is the result. That doesn't mean there isn't an awkwardness the next couple times I see the person, but man, it's so freeing to walk in the light before God and other people. And so there's humility in this prayer. There's there's a healthy fear of the Lord in this prayer. There's trust in him. Here are many times Daniel talked about God's loving kindness and compassion. And the thing I really want you to notice is how Daniel says, the main reason I want you to preserve us and restore us and keep us moving toward you is because you've associated yourself with us. So will you do this for your glory in our lives? See, it's not ultimately about us. Oh, it, it includes us, but it's not ultimately about us. It's for the glory of God, for your namesake, for your glory, is what Daniel keeps saying here. It's just a beautiful expression of a godly man. You know, when you sin, you need to realize that God's the one you need to run to. You know, some people... They think of God like this father who when they, when they do something wrong and get in trouble, their first thought is, dad's going to kill me. But if you really know God for who he is, your first thought's going to be, I better call dad. I need to run to him. He's the only one who can help me. He's the only one I can find forgiveness and safety and re- reconciliation and, and, and the kind of work he needs to do in my heart. You'd be an idiot to run anywhere else to, but to God when you fail. And as you live out this Christian life, you need to know there's going to be pushback. It's just part of the deal. Look at this passage in John 15. 
If the world hates you, know that it's hated me, Jesus says, before it hated you. If you were of the world, living no differently, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's just part of the deal. It's part of how it goes, right? Uh, What's the next passage? I can't remember. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Let's go back to the other one, guys. So, so just know it's part of the deal. The more committed to God and his ways you become, the more pushback you're going to get. It, it'll, it'll go from rejection or eye rolls or not getting invited to parties or people just thinking you're horrible because you believe in, say, Christian sexual morality or you, you believe in, in Jesus is the only way to God and that there is such a thing as hell and people deserve judgment and sin is a reality. If you believe those basic Christian truths that Jesus is going to come back to judge the world someday and we're called to preach the gospel and Jesus is the only Savior, people will think you're terrible. I, I just read this week, uh, there's a student at University of Southern Illinois and on her Instagram page, nothing in class, but on her Instagram page, she, she put something about a pro-life belief she has as a Christian, that babies deserve dignity and value and protection. On her Instagram page, three of her fellow students got the university to get a campus restraining order on her so that she couldn't come near them or talk to them or take the same classes as they took because she held a Christian view of the value of human life. She's a dangerous person. And see, more and more, you just got to be ready for that. Now, apparently she sued the university and they have to pay her a lot of money right now for treating her that way. So you can work within the legal system. These guys are doing it right. It doesn't mean we just, just take all the hits. Sometimes we say, you know, in this system, citizens have rights. And as long as we can can have those, we're going to fight for them. But it doesn't mean that's what, because they could go away, right? It's not, that's not what we live for. That's not where our security comes from. It's got to come from knowing God's in his throne no matter what happens. And so are you ready for push? Are you ready for rejection, for not getting a job you otherwise wouldn't have gotten? I, I know I haven't gotten jobs because I was forthright about my Christian faith in interviews. Long time ago. I haven't looked for a job in decades, but, it, but that was a long time ago. But but yeah, are you ready for rejection? Are you ready for that? Do you, do you actually have the ability when that happens to you to say, oh yeah, Jesus told me this would happen. And he told me it would only happen if I don't look just like the world. So that's kind of encouraging. <laughs> that's kind of enlivening. I guess I'm real. I guess I'm different. And again, we don't want to be different just for the sake of being different. We want to be different for the right reasons. And so we follow him faithfully, knowing being hated is part of the deal. And in many ways, I want you to think about the Christian life is really this combination between this next passage, the Great Commission, to go in the authority of Jesus and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded, that call to be disciples who make disciples. That's the awesome privilege you have, to be disciple-making disciples. But you've got to combine the Great Commission with this next passage, the Great Commandment. 
Jesus is asked, how do you sum up the whole law and prophets? And he says, oh, it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Your love for God translates into your love for people. And when you combine the great commission to make disciples with the great commandment, you've really got the heart of the Christian life. You've got the heart of living for Christ in this way. And so we go in love, knowing the faithful who fulfill the great commandment and the great commission, no matter how loving you are, you'll still be persecuted. Look at these passages. Oh, no, the next one. I doubled up on that, I guess. Here we go. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's part of the deal. Luke 21, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they'll put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That's what you're signing up for. I don't think we're honest enough with people about what it really means to be a Christian sometimes. I mean, the most, the, the most numerically and financially successful churches in the United States never talk about passages like this. It's come to Jesus and everything will be good. You'll have fancy cars, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and those are just lies. This side of heaven, following Jesus, means following the man of sorrows who was hated. And it doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean you enjoy it. it. doesn't mean you look for opportunities for it, but it does mean you're so committed to walking in holiness, knowing what it will bring, and you do it anyway. Because you wouldn't trade what it means to walk in intimacy with God for anything. That's what it's all about. Is closer intimacy with God. And the more like him you become and the more you live like he would have you live and live according to his character, the closer you get to him. And that's your priority. That's what you want more than anything. You won't live without that. The Bible says we'll even be persecuted by family. Uh, I've, this photograph is always stirring to me every time I look at it. This is our first mission trip we did for an extensive period. Of time. I spent quite a bit of time in India, and wow, India is a complex place. I talked about exegeting culture and trying to understand culture. It's impossible to understand India. It is just, and I think maybe that's how you understand India. Don't try. <laughs> it's just amazing. But this is a powerful photograph to me. I'll never forget meeting this family. The man in the red shirt and the striped tie is a pastor of a church outside of Delhi. And his wife is the, the, the beautiful lady in the, uh, the maroon scarf with that young lady and that older gentleman in between them. Met this family, and that's their daughter in between them. But as we were having dinner and we found out the story, and I was talking to this young lady in the middle, their daughter, I found out that she's not biologically their daughter. She's actually from a Hindu family. You know, India is interesting because there's a lot of persecution against Christians, but they actually don't care if you're a Christian as long as your understanding of Christianity just includes Jesus with all the other gods. And if it stays very private, conversion is where there's a problem. When you go from one religion to another, which is what happened when this pastor and his wife preached the gospel to this young lady and led her to a saving relationship with him. And she went home and told her family, and they were actually kind of okay with it. But when she was publicly baptized and declared that she was a follower of Jesus and Jesus alone, 
Her family disowned her. She was no longer their daughter. And so when this pastor in India and his wife led this young lady to Christ, they knew they were not only gaining a new member of their church, they were gaining a new daughter. Because her family said goodbye to her for good. And so they had to say hello to her for good. And that's how the people of God work. That's how we roll. That's how the people of God have been working for all of our history. You know, it touches really close to home for me in this because I've never met him, but my great uncle Mike, this is a photograph of my great uncle Mike, who was from, from Pennsylvania. And he was from um, Allegheny, Pennsylvania. And he became a Christian. And then he became a missionary. But listen to this little bit of his story. He heard the gospel for the first time in his life as an 18-year-old. And he said this, God, if there's any power in that blood that was shed for my sins, let it be applied to my heart right now. I had never heard a prayer before. In fact, I had never been in a church before or talked with Christians except for the man who gave me this gospel tract I was reading. As I uttered those words of that simple prayer, the burden of my sin was lifted and I knew I had been saved. I said nothing at home at first. His father was a raging alcoholic, angry man. I said nothing at home at first, but of course eventually my father found out. He became extremely angry and wanted to know that he did not approve of my becoming what he called a salvationist. He ordered me to abandon my new religion, but I told him I could never do that. Then he ordered me out of the home. I found other quarters where I could live, but occasionally I would steal home when I thought my father was working. Twice my father caught me at home. Once he grabbed a butcher knife to stab me, but my brother-in-law standing behind him caught his arm. When my father turned to see who had interfered, I slipped out the door. Another time he tried to choke me to death, but God intervened miraculously that time. Finally, I left for Nyack, New York to prepare for missionary work for the Lord, for he had revealed to me I was to serve him in Africa. Just before sailing for France and then on to Africa, I visited my father. He was quite calm this time, but of course, he thought I, I was ridiculous to go to a place where cannibals lived. He said he hoped they would finish the work he had meant to do. In other words, kill me. I was assigned to begin missionary work with my wife Myrtle in Timbuktu. During our first term, the hardest of missionary activities, we learned a foreign language, translated many portions of scripture, and won the friendship of these Mohammedan people, both men and women. This was a strong Muslim city, and therefore we had opposition, but eventually we praised the Lord for the souls that did emerge out of darkness, seeing the true and living God. Myrtle's love for the women of this land was poured out upon them. Her life was a strength and joy to all her, who knew her, and her ministry was unceasing. After five years, Myrtle became sick with malaria. She passed away on June 9, 1930, at 32 years of age. No other missionaries were on the station at the time. And as communication was very difficult, I had to bury my wife myself. On her gravestone it says, having fought the good fight, she awaits the resurrection. As I review the past 45 years, I can only rejoice at what God has done. If I had another life to live, I would gladly give it for Africa. We found joy and peace and blessing in the service of the king. That's living, people.
That's living. Great sacrifice, great persecution, great opposition, and great joy and peace and blessing. So what do you do if you want to live a life of patient endurance, of faithfulness like Daniel, of faithfulness like my Uncle Walt or this young lady in India? Well, you stay at the things you know bring you closer to God. You become men and women of the word. You become women of, men and women of prayer, constant daily prayer, set aside times of prayer. You become men and women of service where you seek to be used by God and love other people and have him work through you and help them to know him better. You live a life of proclamation, speaking well of Jesus. And you live a life devoted to the fellowship of the saints. You know, what happens here is so special, and at the core of it all is relationship, isn't it? Relationships having fun, relationships eating meals, relationships doing pranks, relationships sitting and, and, and listening to the word preached, relationships along with each other, worshiping God, and doing all the things that we do. Relationships are, are what we're created for, first and foremost with God, and then with each other. So commit to the church. The church of God is your identity. And as you've seen, we can take my Uncle Walt off there, thanks. As you've seen, um, sometimes your own earthly family, and I know some of you understand this very well, will reject you when you follow Jesus faithfully. But you've got to find your identity in Jesus and your primary relationships with the people of God. doesn't mean you don't love people who aren't Christians. Of course you do. Actually, you're to love your enemies, That's this astounding thing. Look at this passage about this command to love your enemies. So we're persecuted, we're hated, and our ability to love them is what it's all about. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. In other words, the distinctive trait is being highlighted here is loving those who hate you. It's so easy to be defensive. It's so easy to be so easily insulted, especially in this thin-skinned culture where everybody's so sensitive about everything. Not quite as much in the Northeast, which is one of the reasons I love coming back here. There's a little bit of a tougher skin here than most of the rest of the country, which is why I like coming back here. But still, it's amazing how, how easily offended we can be in our culture. Let's be people who are so confident in who we are in Christ. That if somebody hates us or mocks us or makes fun of us or rolls their eyes at us, that doesn't shake us. You know, I have students constantly say when I talk about boldness, but what if people get offended? And usually I just say, they get offended. Hopefully it's not because you're offensive, but because Jesus is. And the aroma of Christ is something they don't find enjoyable. Have you ever had that experience where you haven't said anything judgmental, but people say, oh, you're a Christian, you're judgmental, you're a bigot, you're, you're like, no, really, I'm not, why are you so angry? Like, you think this is wrong and that's wrong. Well, yeah, but I'm not angry about it. No, you're angry. How could you be so angry and hateful? Well, actually, you're making me angry by accusing me of being angry when I'm not angry, but I'm not angry, right, until now, and, and then it's, it, you go south quickly. But it's amazing how if we know who we are in Christ, If people don't like us, people even hate us, it doesn't rock us. Because we know the God who made us loves us. And we're walking faithfully with him. And we can trust trust him with our lives and our reputation and everything. 
And so commit to the people of God. And please commit to the people of God because of Jesus and no other reason. So I have a son, my youngest boy, Isaac, who just had, I think, his 17th surgery yesterday. He, um, he has something called amniotic banding syndrome. When he was born, he didn't have a f- one of his f- feet was missing, five of his fingers are missing. He has got post-polio syndrome in his left leg. He um, has some learning disabilities, but he is the life of the party everywhere he goes. He's got an incredibly highly developed sense of humor and relational intuition, and everybody loves Isaac. <laughs> He's an incredible kid. But it's, it's been a profound thing to be part of his life when he's part of communities that have disabilities. So well, the first activity he got involved in, I have this photograph here of, of Isaac at a tournament, a, a wheelchair basketball tournament. That's Isaac in the front. And I want you to look at how different the guys behind him are. Right? See, the thing about people in, in, the, in the disabled community is they all share a common challenge, disabilities. And they all have this common interest in doing everything they can to adapt to the disabilities so they can do things like play wheelchair basketball. Isaac's, can I brag on my son a little bit? It's okay if I brag on Isaac as an athlete because he has none of my DNA and none of it comes from me, right? (laughs) It's kind of safe. You can brag about your kid when he's a good athlete when he doesn't have your DNA. I think a little more easily. Isaac is ranked fifth in the nation in wheelchair tennis right now on the junior level. He played a couple of grown adult men in the doubles tournament a few weeks ago. And after he and his partner won the first set, two teenagers, 6-0, the dude rolls over to the the chair umpire and says, I want that kid right there tested for drugs right now. It was hilarious. (laughs) Just fantastic. But, But that's Isaac in the front. But what I love about this is in this community, you've got uh, ex-biker gang dudes who lost a leg in a motorcycle accident. You've got Vietnam vets, right? You've got people from completely different walks of life. Look at this next picture. This guy is Matt Scott. They call him the Steph Curry of wheelchair basketball. He's been an Olympian. He, he's... Maybe he's probably the bet, well, one of the top five best wheelchair basketball players on the planet. And he was Isaac's first wheelchair basketball coach. African-American guy who feels an incredible bond and kinship to this little kid born in Anhui province in China. Different, different generation, different race. Uh, Mike's from Detroit. And he loves Isaac. And when Isaac rolls into this gym for the very first time, he, he literally and relationally took him under his arm and wanted to do everything he could to help him. All the stuff that usually divides us as human beings, like race, like socioeconomic status, like your social background, where you're from, your personality type, some test you took that told you what Enneagram number you were or or whatever it may be, even a gifts assessment survey, or whatever it is that gives you your little identity that you have so much importance on, it all gets blown out of the water when you have a common challenge, a common goal, and you're in it together. You see, actually, the wheelchair community, it pales in comparison 
to what we as Christians have in our common challenge, principalities and powers in high places, our own sin that we battle every day. And we have a common goal to glorify God with our lives and have him use us to bring as many people to him as we can. And so all the things that so easily divide us, I mean, look at that picture. In some ways, those two couldn't be more different than they are. But there's a bond they have. There's, there's a protectiveness. I mean, Mike, when, when we walked in, he starts looking out for Isaac. Isaac isn't in a chair all the time, and so he was even learning to use that chair. And, and, and Mike was looking out for him. That was his little buddy. That was his little brother in their common challenge, their common goal, and their common quest to overcome this challenge together. We got to think more like these folks do in the church. I mean, we need to take a lesson from people who understand what's really important and what isn't. All the things that so easily divide us. And you know what will be the best thing for us? Persecution. You know, when I moved out to Southern I was the only Christian I knew of in my high school. Actually, I think there was one girl who was kind of in the closet with her Christian faith. And, and she, and, but I, I'm pretty sure, looking back, she was a Christian. And since then, two kids from my high school in Connecticut became Christians I know of. But, but um, I, and so I felt alone so often. In college, man, there were so few Christians in my college. I started a Bible study on my football team, and out of, out of 90 guys on that team, I got 10 to show up for this Bible study every week. And it was a huge victory huge victory. You move to other parts of the country, you see people reading their Bibles in coffee shops all the time and praying. You got these mega churches, you got these cool pastors, you got these cool worship leaders. It can actually be cool to be a Christian. I know what life is like here. It's like, am I alone here? You see somebody else in the supermarket from your church, and it doesn't matter if they're a computer geek and you're this cool guy. You go over and say, hey, how's it going? Because the most important thing that unites you is Jesus. And yeah, that's what we need to show to the world. When they say, hey, how are you even, how do you even know each other? You're so different. How do you even know each other? Never mind call each other brother and sister. And we say, oh, Jesus. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our race. It's not our cultural background. It's not our language. It, just like these guys, they stayed true to who they were, wherever they were. And they stayed united. And that's what we need. So let's pursue Jesus. I want to end with this passage. I love this passage as we think about what it means to live resilient lives in an increasingly hostile culture. If I ever see any of you again, you know, I found out that some of you were coming out of eighth grade the last time I spoke here at Hume, New England. Some of you were coming out of eighth grade and now you've graduated from high school. And it's been beautiful to come and see some of you again, see you walking with Jesus. But I love what Paul says to the Philippians. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Heavenly Father, that's a weighty calling, and it's a glorious calling. And it's so good to know that it doesn't depend on us to fulfill that calling to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm 
with one mind and one heart together. But Lord, thank you for the Spirit's work. We depend on him to do this in us and through us and to unite us as your people. Lord, I pray for these precious young men and women who have a life before them. Lord, we know, we don't know how many more hours any of us have on this earth before we see you. But Lord, for however many days or months or years you give each person here, I pray they would be living and walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.